Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host, and I want to thank everyone for listening in and, and sharing the podcast with their friends and family. And if you like it, please keep sharing it and telling people about it. Our fans are growing and our subscribers are growing, so I thank everyone for doing that. Today, I have with us Jessica Little of Sweetgrass Dairy. How are you doing today, Jessica? I'm wonderful. doing wonderfully. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And Jessica and her husband, Jeremy, are the owners of Sweetgrass Dairy, which is a creamery, a cheese shop, and a restaurant. So, Jessica, tell us a little bit about your guy's story and how you ended up with a creamery, a cheese shop, and a restaurant. Sure. Um, so I grew up in South Georgia, and I grew up on a dairy farm. My father is from a long line of dairy farmers, and um, I grew up showing cows in 4-H, and my parents made a big switch when I was in middle school. They were farming in a conventional style, the way that they were taught at the University of Georgia, um, and they were milking 2,000 Holstein cows in around the clock three times a day, um, and they, they lived in, in freestyle barns. So in the dairy industry, cows are uh, pushed for maximum production because dairy farmers are paid on volume and not on quality. And um, after doing this for about 15 years, my parents said there had to be a better way. That These cows, you know, the average lifespan of a dairy cow in a conventional system is only two to three lactations. So they were burning out, you know, not only their cows, their land you know, their workforce, and um, my mom was very much a visionary, and she knew that the best way to uh, to convince my dad that they needed to make a big change was to uh, convince him that it was his idea, so she signed him up for a New Zealand rotational grazing conference, and he came back and said, why in the world are we doing so much work and growing all these crops and taking them to the cows? Why don't we just let the cows out? into the pasture to graze, and they can do all the work for us. So when I was in middle school, they sold their conventional dairy and started over with a New Zealand rotational-style farm. And I was hooked. This farming method, the cows were so much healthier, the land was healthier, there's no barns whatsoever. Cows get to live their entire lives, 365 days a year out on grass. And that's really what makes us so special in that we are on top of our second, the second largest aquifer in the nation called the Florida Aquifer. So we have unlimited water and we have very mild winters. We never get snow where we have to put cows in barns. And I just, I love this, you know, humane animal husbandry and sustainable agriculture, but I knew I didn't want to be a dairy farmer. So I went to college and studied marketing and um, started working in restaurants where I met my husband. He has a degree in Ecology, but he was saving up money to go to culinary school, so he was working as a kitchen manager. And um, my mom started making cheese in the kitchen just to, we kind of teased her that it was empty nest syndrome or something. And, uh, and, but it was a really fun time for me to take these experimental cheeses around the different chefs in Atlanta and say, you know, what do you think? And I, it was such a positive um interaction because they would say oh my gosh we've been waiting for you and it wasn't me in particular or you know my mom it was somebody making cheeses locally and that was in 2000 and um and then the business just grew from there my mom said you know if 
Jerry and I ever wanted to come back to the farm. She thought that we would be a good fit, and um, we ended up moving back in 2002, and then um, it we started growing and selling cheeses further and further away through distribution and, and restaurants, and it kind of took on a different life, and my mom said, my parents believe in giving opportunities and not handouts, so they offered to uh, sell the business to us, the creamery part. And um, we say that's the funniest thing that you can do is if you have actually negative equity in a business that's operating in the red, go to a bunch of banks and try to get a loan to buy a creamery in South Georgia. It took us quite a while, but we finally um, purchased Sweetgrass at the end of 2005 and have continued to grow it ever since. Well, that's amazing. I think the the story about the new New Zealand system of rotating the cows is interesting. So could you tell the audience a little bit about that and what that means um, and how the cows rotate and how often and what that actually does for the cow and what their lifespan now is because of it? Oh, great question. So this is the heart of, of what we do. And, um, so like I said, in a conventional system, you are pushing cows for maximum amount of production, which is how things like BST or growth hormone was, you know, developed, all this agribusiness to try to push cows to make more and more milk. And the New Zealand rotational grazing style is a low input, but very labor or very intensive management system. So every 12 hours, the cows are moved to a, a new pasture or new paddock. So my parents now have three different dairy farms. are all located in Brooks County, Georgia, which is um, only about 30 minutes away from the creamery. And um, they're divided up. They're 350 acres each, and they're divided up into five-acre paddocks. So uh, for a long time, until my brother moved back from college, uh, my dad was out there every morning walking the pastures. He has a, a refractometer measuring the bricks levels and the grasses looking for sugars. And then also with a, a yardstick and measuring the grass because with the cows, you want them to eat the top third of the grass. You don't want them to eat too far uh, close to the ground because, one, you want to keep the soil aerated. You want to keep as much uh, microbiology and also just, you know, insects and earthworms and dung beetles and everything that you can in there for that biodiversity and um, and then you, you don't want them to eat too close to the ground just for parasite management as well. So um, in our system, our cows, because we're not pushing them for maximum production, I mean, we our average lifespan is somewhere between 12 and 14 years, and we do have cows that are closer to 20. And it's really, really remarkable. It's almost unheard of in the dairy industry. And um, they're also doing all natural breeding. They are not using any AI um, artificial insemination. We're truly letting cows be cows. And um, I think that from what we see, the, the flavor of the milk is so different, which is the, the birth of uh, the creamery, of really showing people the, of what cows out on grass, what that milk tastes like. Um, that was the, the vision. So it's less than 5% of all dairy farms in our country are farmed in this manner. I find that so interesting because I know, and I grew up in Maryland, um, but there was a lot of dairy farms there for a long time, and the, the pastures were huge. Um, and obviously cows came indoors because of winter, but in my mind when you said rotating fields, I first thought oh, they're rotating them on 25 to 30 acre lots, but to hear 
the five acres, I mean, it makes sense because if they're easier manageable areas, you can weigh them. And then every 12 hours, that I guess that makes sense as well because then you're making sure that grass has a recovery time. So That is correct. And so it might be three weeks, you know, until you get back to that pasture. It might be two weeks. It really just depends on when that grass is ready. So they call it uh, intensive management grazing because you really are my dad will say he is not a dairy farmer he's a dirt and grass farmer so if he can you know really grow grass the cows are going to be taken care of um, because it's so much more labor intensive there yeah i'm and i know that grass-fed milk in general the cheese and the butter and stuff that's coming out of those products is generally higher quality anyway um at least from our perspective in food as well so tell us a little bit about the cheese making process. So once the cows are milked, um, and is the milking then done in the traditional sense of the farms, they come in somewhere and done, or they do it in the field. How does that work? And the New Zealand model. So, yes. And that, that actually can vary. So as with every other industry, the dairy industry is experiencing a little bit of innovation and, and change. And, um, that we're, now seeing dairy farms that are milked with robotic milkers and uh, things, you know, the robots you can put actually out in the field so that the cows can, you know, decide when they want to be milked. And we're not there yet. They're, each of these robots, um, the last time my dad quoted them, I think they're getting cheaper, but they were about half a million dollars a piece. So it's not really affordable for the, the small dairy farmer. Right now, our cows come up twice a day and there is what we call the milking shop. So it's really just a roof um, with a milking parlor. So 40 cows come in on one side, and um, they're milked, and then um, 40 cows will come in on the other, and the milking, the milker systems are swung from one side to the other. So it's called a swing 40. Uh, very, very basic. Um, I'm not sure that you could build a cheaper milking parlor. So um, that is definitely not where they have put uh, their investment. My dad, if anything, is investing in the soil and, and uh, putting out. We live on coastal sandy plain soil, so um, we're having to introduce a lot of trace minerals that the cows need to be healthy that are not otherwise there, like our copper and boron, um, selenium, magnesium, those sort of things that, that the cows need. So they're constantly trying to get nitrogen out there naturally and um, without having to use any you know, heavy metals or, or, you know, conventional fertilizers and that sort of thing. So um, it is a very, very basic barn. And um, I do believe, though, that when it becomes a little bit more affordable, that robots would be very beneficial because there's something about giving the cow the decision of when she wants to be milk, uh, milked that is very appealing, you know, in our system. And we always try to think about cow comfort first. And, um, and the latest research is showing that cows actually really like to choose when they when they want to be milked. So um, I, I don't rule that out as a possible investment in the future. I actually, I, I didn't even know that was possible. I guess it would make sense. But the cow making the decision, I mean, that's a totally blows my mind, actually. And I've been in food a long time. And I, you know, I always thought they would just gain enough and then it's time to milk. I guess I never realized that they could choose. And so I, that whole concept yeah. literally blows my mind. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And then the other part that really excites me actually is that with the robotics, 
um, while it's, you know, you sort of get rid of labor. The thing is, is you don't have the barns necessarily for them to go into and the robots falling around the cows from field to field or, or however that works or one in each field, I would assume they follow them. But that is, um, that is extremely interesting. I think that's huge for what we're talking about in this world and, and just being able to, to manage the system properly and, you know, the ecosystem and, and keep things sustainable and allowing the cows to make decisions. It's just, it's so amazing. I didn't even think that that was possible, but I guess it makes sense. I mean, yes. Well, and I I also, I mean, I have to preface that with also, there are really, really amazing dairy farmers and many different ways to farm. So I, I am not a staunch believer that New Zealand rotational grazing is the, the only way or the best way. I think that you have to, a smart dairy farmer is always going to look at their cow health first and how to, to make them as comfortable and happy as possible and also play to your resources. So we have some really good friends that are cheesemakers in the northern kingdom of Vermont, and those cows are not able to be, it would be inhumane to put them outside for, you know, eight months out of the year. It's just too cold, and they're not able to grow enough grass. The same thing in the San Joaquin Valley of California where they're making so much milk. It's a desert. I mean, these cows would be miserable outside. So they have really invested in cow comfort and barns that these cows lay on waterbeds or sand that gets raked three times a day and it's sisters and fans it's so comfortable in there for them so i I do not believe that there's only one way to farm i think that there's that grass-fed became such a big buzzword for meat production because in meat you're trying to grow an animal as fast as you can to send it to the butcher and it's really really hard to do that quickly on grass and so it became this humane debate you know on whether you know was grass-fed more humane than grain-fed and in a lot of ways for for beef it is because you know you are creating this acidosis in the gut and all these inhumane things are happening in feedlot beef but in dairy that is not the case because the goal is longevity so you're not going to see those um you know, same practices happening in a dairy farm that you might see in meat production. And I, I do believe that there's many, many, you know, ways to farm and that you have to utilize your resources. And we just happen to have very mild weather as far as being able to grow grass and a lot of water. So we're, we're trying to utilize our, our resources in the most efficient way to, to make milk, if that makes sense. And no, completely. And I, I actually like that we talked about this a little bit because sometimes on, uh, at least in our company, but also on this podcast, we've talked a little bit about food deserts and how to create agriculture within those food deserts and what they're doing with the cows in California. I think the dairy cows is amazing and actually a solution just like aquaponics and hydroponics is a solution as well in food deserts to grow uh, produce. So I, I do want to mm-hmm. touch upon that. I think that's amazing. Okay. So then let's get back to the, the creamery. So once the milk's pumped, it goes into tractor trailers. And um, as we talked about, I think before the episode on one of your parents, three farms, uh, the Green Hill Dairy, there's, you use 300 out of the 1500 cows to, to produce your milk. So as those cows are milked, um, what happens next? And when is the prime time to, to take that milk in order to make cheese? 
Yes. So it's really, really important for the cheesemaker to have a really close relationship with the herdsman or the dairy manager. So that happens to be my brother um, named Clay, who um, ended up uh, going after college to New Zealand to work on dairy farms for a while before he came back to the farm. And um, we, it's, it's very difficult to make cheese from early lactation and late lactation milk. And with my parents, three different dairy farms, they each have a two-month calving window. And, and they overlap a little bit. But when Clay and Jeremy talk together, uh, he can say, oh, well, this is the composition of the milk right now. Here are the proteins to fat. And um, Jeremy can choose which dairy farm he wants to, to pull the milk from. So he, they coordinate through the co-op. And um, a tractor trailer will come and pick up fresh milk uh, from whichever farm they want and then deliver it straight to us at Sweetgrass. Uh, again, it's about 30 minutes away. And um, we only want to get milk um, that we are going to turn into cheese over the next two days. You'd really, the, the secret to great cheese is to have really great milk. And um, you don't want it to sit for, you know, really if we could make it all fresh right from the cow right then, it would be the best case scenario but we can refrigerate it and make cheese two days out of that and um so it's just a little bit of coordination and it also you know um has to do with the level of grass so maybe one farm you know is not growing as as much grass then clay would say to jeremy you know what you might not want to bring in uh milk from grassy flats right now We're, we're having a little bit of a grass shortage we're having to give the cows more hay um, or whatever, and so um, it's just very important that they have a really open open lines of communication to, to get the best milk possible. I mean, that's a true business partnership right there. I don't think many people have that. Well, they're obviously brother-in-laws, so there's that. But on a business level, it's also the partnership and the communication that's so important. And so are they testing the milk every day coming out of the cows to measure that um, the levels that you were talking about from uh, chemicals or chemistry, uh, however it's done, I'm not sure how that's done. Uh, do you have a laboratory that you, you use in-house on the farm to measure that? No, we actually, well, we have um, a composition meter at the at the creamery, but we can, um, they can log in to the co-op. So every load that the co-op picks up, they run the the specifications and a whole lot more than what we can do in our tiny little laboratory. So um, Clay can log in and see this kind of trending data. So it's a little bit of looking at past, you know, the last couple of days, but then being able to predict, you know, the future, knowing where the cows are and and what they're eating. So um, they do not have a uh, lab on site, but, um, you know, there is data that they can access through the co-op. So you can literally choose the days you want the milk to pr- produce the cheese. So, I mean, it takes just-in-time production and just-in-time inventory to a whole new level from a business concept. You're really, it's just-in-time being that it's the t- right time and the cow's milk hits the measurements that you need to produce the quality of cheese that you want. That is correct. Uh, so what type of... F- um, I'm going to go back to the cheese making process, but just so the audience knows, uh, what type of cheeses do you have and, and produce, and what are the varieties? So we make very old world inspired cheeses, meaning 
uh, from recipes that are cheese types that are made in Europe. So we like to say that we're old world inspired, but with new world flavors. So we can make a, our most popular cheese is called Green Hill. It's in the family of a camembert, but it does not taste like a camembert made in France because we have very different terroir and very different cattle and, and uh, milk. So um, our most popular cheese, like I said, is called Green Hill. It's named after our flagship dairy, Green Hill Dairy. And um, we also make a Thomasville Tome, which is a French farmhouse style, kind of an everyday table cheese that's aged anywhere from 60 to 120 days. Uh, we make a beer curd washed cheese called Griffin. We make a natural rinded blue called Asher Blue um, and a fresh cow's milk cheese called Little Moo and then several seasonal. So we make a Georgia Gouda. Again, made like a Gouda, but it will taste very different than uh, a Gouda that you might purchase in Holland and um, or from Holland. And um, several, like we make a Claiborne with the cheddar style. And I think that as Americans, we're so fortunate because we have the freedom and ability to be very innovative. So we don't have the rules that dictate like you would in France or Italy or Spain that are AOC, DOP, saying that you, if you come from this area, you have to make this style of cheese from this type of cows and from, you know, these seasons. But we really have the freedom to, to make, you know, whatever we want and try lots of experiments and uh, a lot of R&D but we found that there are some things that we will probably always stay true to our area and that, as you can imagine, one of our biggest weaknesses is the heat and um, how much it costs to age cheeses um, in coolers on our coastal sandy plain soils with an aquifer just below us. There's no way to build an underground cave and we're very flat. There's no mountains that we could put a cave into for aging. So we probably won't ever make cheeses that have to age for long periods of time, like Swiss-inspired cheeses, Gruyere, Emmentaler, um, Oppenzeller, anything like that. And we probably won't make, you know, cheddars on a regular basis. We maybe make one or two batches a year just to offer at the holidays, and that's it. So it would just cost us way too much money to um, to age cheeses. Um, it would be too expensive, you know, to the consumer uh, after we had gotten finished aging for a year or something uh, with the cheese. So we really try to focus on soft ripen and uh, firmer style cheeses that can be ready for market in four or less months. It's kind of our sweet spot. And what's your most popular cheese that you guys um, sell? Probably the Green Hill. It's double cream cow's milk with a white bloomy rind. It's in the family of a camembert. They're roughly eight ounces piece. And, um, it will probably be the cheese that will pay for our children's college. We sell more of it than anything else, and it's our most award-winning cheese as of right now. And then, so in your restaurant, do you promote those cheeses, and what type of food do you guys have at the restaurant then, and, and how did you get into opening the restaurant from the creamery to the cheese shop and then the restaurant? How did sort of all of that take place? <laughs> That is because we're gluttons for punishment, I think. We just try to make our lives as difficult as possible. But So Jeremy and I met in restaurants, and we love, love hospitality. And we just love making people happy, and we say that food is our love language. And when we um, came back to the creamery, 
purchased and when we purchased Sweetgrass Dairy, it wasn't just to make cheese. It was that we really, really want to be part of the movement of helping to cultivate an inspired American food culture. And cheese was our platform to do it. We really believe that everybody deserves great food and everybody deserves to know where their food comes from. And so we were making these cheeses and, and it was so such a wonderful time and, and growth of American cheesemakers. There's cheese now made in all 50 states and, and the quality of that being made, I mean, it's never been better. It's so exciting. And, but we were shipping our cheeses further and further away. Our county had less than 50,000 people. We just could not support the amount of cheese that, that we needed to make um, to be a sustainable company. And so we were sending them further and further away and, and selling to chefs. And it felt a little bit frustrating because one, we weren't able to make enough. And two, we were still trying to figure out all the packaging and the temperature controls and, you know, everything. And so it felt like the only time that we were getting phone calls were talking to distributors or chefs and they were so upset because we couldn't make enough or there was problems, you know, in shipping or UPS or whatever. And it just felt a little bit exhausting. And, and we were in New York one summer for the fancy food show. We were staying in the West Village and, you know, kind of popping in and out of all those little restaurants and cheese shops. You know, of course, Murray's is there. And I just looked at Jeremy and I said, I really have got to stop complaining about Thomasville and not having a place where we want to go and eat or just have a, a, you know, be able to sit down and have a cheese board and a great glass of wine or a really fun cocktail or beer. And, um, and I was like, I've got to just stop complaining about it. I'm, I'm going to create the, you know, uh, the place that we want to go and hang out. And we opened the cheese shop two months later from that. That was in 2010. And it really, it started as a retail shop and it had just four little tables in the back. And we thought if people wanted to sit down and have a cheese board, then, you know, they were welcome to, we didn't have a server. It was kind of counter service. And, um, we quickly realized that we were not the only ones in Thomasville that wanted a place to go for a good glass of wine and a cheese board. And um, it just snowballed from there. So then we, we kept adding more and more tables and offering, you know, salads and sandwiches and grilled cheese sandwiches. And, and then um, we had the opportunity to move the cheese shop um, about a 100 steps and into a, a full restaurant space. And now we have, you know, Woodfire Grill and uh, Carpaggiani Gelato, you know, maker and, and all of this equipment that we are still able to do very, we call it very pedestrian, very friendly food um, that is not fussy because it, it would be really easy to make wine and cheese, you know, uh, pretentious, but we don't. We want it to be very approachable. And, um, but we make everything in-house and source from like-minded vendors. So, um, we have, you know, grass-fed burgers and house-cut french fries and, and, you know, all of our own dipping sauces and working with local farmers, you know, to, for our produce. And we, we're very fortunate in uh, South Georgia and North Florida to have really, some really cool food stuff like Georgia Olive Farms and White Oak Pastures and, um, you know, just, I mean, I, the list is endless, I feel like. So it really is um, a fun project for us. It's you know, grown into quite an animal in the beginning. We just called the cheese shop our hobby. Um, and now, you know, it's kind of taken a life of its own. And we feel um, there's a lot of value in kind of being woven into the inner fabric of our community. It's the way that, 
you know, we're able to interact with the community. We feel like we're, we're providing a, a service and a, a place to go. And, and it, you know, it's also our, a really great testing ground. So anytime we have a new cheese or we're working on something, we can offer it through the cheese shop and put it on our cheese boards or in the retail area and um, get really great feedback before we try to launch something, you know, through our distribution network. So it's, there's been many, many positives to come out of this little idea of, of opening this little quaint cheese shop that's now kind of taken on a life of its own. I love that, actually. I love the part about being a part of your community, for sure. And then the second part I love is that you're using your community to be your testers for your basically your R&D and new cheeses and things like that. So just out of curiosity, are you planning on continually introducing more and more new cheeses? How do you decide what cheeses you bring to market? How did you decide to make the cheeses that you have so far? Um, great questions again. So, um, and it's a little bit trial and error, but this is really where Jeremy shines. You know, he is so passionate about, you know, the innovation component. And he always says that his dream job is that we could grow big enough to where his title would be chief creative officer. Like he just wants to, you know, be able to work on new cheeses and, and new food, uh, for the restaurant. And, um, so it all starts with, I think this is also where Jeremy really shines in, with his food service background. He's got an incredible palate. So he works backwards. Uh, for instance, with the Georgia Gouda, he really, really wanted to make a cheese that would make the perfect grilled cheese sandwich. And so, you know, he wrote down all of the characteristics that a perfect grilled cheese sandwich would have, like not too much oil. So when the cheese melted, there wouldn't be this oil separation like you have with cheddar. You know, it had to, had to have a sweeter uh, flavor profile. So he needed more of that Helveticus, you know, the cultures, that diacetyl, the butteriness. And he, you know, kind of worked backwards and said, oh, well, we probably need to do a washed curd, you know, pressed cheese. And, and you know, and Gouda was kind of born from that. And the same thing with um, every cheesemaker has a cheese that they tasted that kind of changed their life. And made them want to, you know, get into this industry. And for him, it was the very first time that he tasted Roquefort, which, you know, is a blue cheese. And he said that he had to make blue. And so Asher Blue has been a labor of love um, and the toughest cheese for us to figure out. It's a raw milk, natural rind, non-homogenized blue. It's really about the most difficult style of cheese that you can make with all the different variables and um, we've had years where we just kind of got off track and we, we couldn't figure out how to make it consistently. And, and then in late 2017, Jeremy went to France for a couple weeks, I don't know, two or three weeks and really dove deep into a, a blue cheese course to, to try to figure it out. And, you know, he, he's so um, tenacious and, and he's not going to give up. And, and so it's, it's really exciting to see him. And it's one of those things that usually takes at least two years to develop a new cheese because you make it and then you might have to age it for four months before you see how it's, you know, turned out and, and what it's like. Because along that aging process, the Afanage process, those amino acids are, are breaking and as they break, sometimes there are bitter, you know, um, aromas or even flavors that will come out. So a cheese at two months, you know, 
might taste really bitter and be terrible that by four months it's aged past that and now it's smooth and you get more caramel notes or mushroomy notes or whatever it may be. And um, But you make all these little tiny, tiny changes, whether it's heating the milk up another two degrees or cutting it uh, 10 minutes later or you know washing it for 30 minutes longer in beer, whatever it may be that make huge changes by the end of that aging process. And so it takes a very long time to develop a cheese. So part of it, it is what he's passionate about making, what he thinks our our milk is uh, a good uh, ingredient for. So we're going to make cheeses that really show off the grassiness of our milk, that cheeses that tend to be a little bit more earthy and mushroomy and grassy. And then, um, and then what the market will bear. So what, what do consumers want? So it's a, it's a little bit of a guess and a hope and a prayer and, you know, hope that people are, you know, responding, you know, like we want to achieve, but you, like any entrepreneur, you have to be willing to to pivot and and keep trying, you know, until it works. So the Green Hill is a great example in that originally it was a lactic set cheese. It was not enzymatic like it is now and um, we worked with it for about two years before we said you know what this is just not working we need to really go back to the drawing board and and re-envision this how how can we get the end result that we're looking for and and completely change the process and and now it's our number one cheese so um that's that's probably jeremy's most fun part of his job yeah, that's pretty incredible. Just getting to play with cheese basically all day and experiment and be creative. I think that's awesome. I have a question, and I've, I've actually been curious about it for a while, but I and I've never looked it up on the internet, but how does blue cheese get the blue color? Like, what causes so, that? So, it's actually mold. It's, um, so you add cultures um, to start the acidification process. So, you know, cheese is a fermented food. So you want to turn, um, you want to start building that acidity. Um, and so you add starter cultures, but then with blue cheese, we actually also add the mold. It's a penicillium roqueforti. And, um, and that blue actually will grow, um, when it's introduced to oxygen. So we make the cheese and then it's pierced about, a week after it's been made, and then the, that you know those metal spikes that go in there—they provide the oxygen down into the cheese for that penicillium rope forty to grow. So it's actually a mold that gives it that flavor. That's that's incredible. I was I figured it was something like that, but I wasn't quite exactly sure how the the bluish color. But that that makes sense, and the different colors of mold, as we know in the food industry, and at least on our side, and that's not cheese, but. Um, it's quite interesting with the different colors that actually happen during that process. Um, so we talked a little bit about um, goats and that you used to milk goats and make goat cheese, but you're not in that anymore. Tell, tell us about that and, and why you decided not to have goats anymore. Sure. So, again, you know, Sweetgrass Dairy was, was started by my mother, who is quite a visionary. Um, I just hope that one day I will be as, as great of a visionary as she is. But um, so she went out to um, California at UC Davis and they have a cheese making program there. So she took that course in 1999 
and had Laura Chanel goat cheese out there and just fell in love with it. And one of the things that's a little bit ironic is that my mom is very lactose intolerant. And so a lot of people that are lactose intolerant can tolerate goat cheeses much, much easier. And um, so she just felt so much better eating it. And where Sweetgrass Dairy, the creamery, is located, it's only 140 acres, but it's almost all in woods. And so my mom thought, well, we can make cow's milk cheeses from the dairy, but we could have a herd of goats here at, at the creamery, so we farmstead um, with the goats. And started with 10 goats that she was hand milking, and it quickly grew. And I think at our max, we were milking about 250 um, goats. But it was something that Jeremy and I realized. So we we farmed, once we bought Sweetgrass in 2005, um, we took over. And I, Jeremy and I, we have four children, uh, four boys. And there are many, many years that I would have a kid, you know, strapped to me and my little baby Bjorn. And milking goats out there on our herdsman's days off. And I loved goats, but I also felt like we were not doing a great job in, in many ways. One, it was very difficult to for Jeremy to develop his uh, cheese-making skills divided between both cow's milk and goat's milk. And it was very hard for me to be a mom. Um, and trying to grow sweetgrass, and once we started the restaurant, you know, we're thinking about starting the, the cheese shop, and so we just, we felt like, you know, I, I guess it goes back to that um, that quote, you know, of not fearing the man that knows a thousand kicks, but fearing the man that kicked, done one kick a thousand times, and Jeremy just knew that he had to really refine what we were doing. We are making 20-something different cheeses, and just did not have the consistency, and so uh, by the end of, well, it was 2009, we thought, you know what, we, we probably need to sell the goats. We, we need to, to focus our, we just were not being very sustainable. We didn't, we couldn't, you know, figure out the, the product mix. And as much as we loved making goat cheese, and we really, really do, I mean, Jeremy misses that so much, we sold the goats, and within two years, we started winning awards again and selling out and like having more demand than we could meet. And it just, we were able to do what we felt like, you know, we could do the best. And we always joke with my brother, if he ever wanted to start a goat dairy again, we would buy all the milk, but we just don't think that our talents lie in being farmers as well as cheesemakers and restaurateurs. So, uh, so we had kind of had to let that go, and it was such a good life lesson. You can't cannot be great at everything. So that was that was painful, but we had to. So you said you have four uh, sons. I, is your household very competitive? <laughs> what you would think, but you know what's really interesting is that. Um, so my dad is actually from Western New York, and he ended up down in Georgia at University of Georgia to play football. I played basketball in very competitively um, and played in college. My middle brother um, is an incredible baseball player, actually got drafted out of high school, but, you know, ended up playing in college. My, all of us have state championships. We're very, very, very competitive. We're only one year apart, each of us have two brothers, and we are highly, highly competitive. And it, I, I love, love my brother dearly, but it made it very difficult growing up to be so competitive. And so having four boys and 
there's only about six and a half years between the oldest and the youngest. So they're relatively close in age. We wanted them to not have those same sort of pressures. And so we really steered them into having their own things. So there, it, it makes it a little bit more work for Jeremy and I and, you know, driving them around to all their different events. It's not like you said, you're all playing soccer, you're all playing baseball. Um, but it has really fostered, uh, I think, better friendships between them. And, um, and also, I will say this, I married a man who is so incredibly talented and creative, but he plays the guitar and he has a minor in literature and he's, you know, an incredible chef. He's a creative spirit. Um, he is not super competitive. He can just do something just because he enjoys it. He doesn't have to win. And it was so refreshing. And so we have two children that are very similar to him and two that are very similar to me. And and uh, so we, we don't have a crazy competitive household, if that a long answer to a short question. No, I, I just, I'm curious because I've, you know, it's, it's always varies, but sometimes a, a group of boys can be very competitive with one another, particularly if they all enjoy the same sports but i think it'll be interesting uh to see i mean you're sort of a line of of entrepreneurs at this point between the the farms and you and your husband jeremy as well as now and they're in seeing the business and they're part of what you guys are doing and um do they help you guys with or are they part of the work are they at the uh the restaurant a lot and do they help you guys with any of the cheese process? So how have you integrated your family a little bit? Are the boys, or is it more they go to school and, and activities and you try not to draw them in at this point? Well, it's a, a little bit of both. We um, So our oldest is 15 um, and our youngest is 9. And um, so they definitely, like on the weekends, we have a farm manager. So we have uh, a lot of gardens and chickens, ducks. Uh, compost and um, things that need to be taken care of at the creamery. Where, and we also live there. And so on the weekends, the older two um, have, have their roles are to feed up, collecting the eggs, washing the eggs, taking care of all of the gardens, checking the greenhouse, you know, all of that stuff. So they um, have uh, quite a bit of, of chores to do on the weekends. It's not during the week. They have our oldest is in a really, really rigorous um, uh, schooling. He's got several AP classes in 10th grade, and he's in Latin club and Odyssey of the Mind. He's got a very, very full uh, academic schedule during the week, so we don't you know, really push him to do a lot of work. Um, but he loves working in the cheese shop. That's his favorite thing is um, working there. So in the summer, on the holidays, um, he would rather be there than anywhere else. And then... Um, they all actually help our, our craziest time at the farm is the holidays. As you can imagine, we have a gift box uh, mail order part of our business that really operates in about five weeks of the year. And it's just madness. And they are out there packing boxes, loading ice packs into freezers and, and uh, helping through that, that rush. And they all like that part. Um, we also, the two little ones help a lot with, we do a summer camp in the summer where we bring kids out to the farm. We have these different stations of working in gardens with animals, um, like a STEM uh, recycling area, arts and crafts, and cooking. And um, they do a lot of the work with our farm manager, Josh, and, and helping get everything set up and, and uh, making sure the gardens are ready and, and all that good stuff. So we, we do try to plug them in as much as we possibly can. And, 
like many parents, I would say that we probably don't do as good of a job as we wish that we did in, in making them have chores, but um, but they do. They they complain about it a lot, so we're doing something. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I think that's amazing, though, just the fact that they're involved and want to be involved and are involved in some way. I think a lot of people that don't have the same experience, I grew up on a horse farm, so I, I sort of understand the dynamic of having chores or jobs on the farm or you know, and if you don't work together as a family, you don't make money or you, an animal might die, uh, for example. But, um, you know, and maintaining that farm for, for everything, I think that's awesome. And I think what we're finding a lot on the podcast is there's a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit in families and they're passing it down to generations as well as people that, uh, particularly in Georgia, grew up on farms that are now doing what you're doing, which is becoming their own entrepreneurs and and having their own food businesses or beverage businesses. And I think that's pretty incredible. So, you know, I think being able to pass down anything you can knowledge-wise, and if they pick it up, that's great. That's amazing. And if they don't, they don't. But I think having just giving the opportunity is is so awesome that they have it as kids. I mean, it's really, I wish as a kid when I was their age, I would have taken more advantage of learning from it. Mm-hmm. Well, I do think that there's so much. I remember when um, after I stopped playing basketball in college and I, I got my first restaurant job and I remember calling my mom and going, I cannot believe that people don't know how to work. Why doesn't anyone know how to work? Like, it was so mind blowing to me. But so, but it's a learned skill. I mean, you work ethic doesn't, you're not born knowing how to work. And, um, and I think that growing up on the farm and showing cows and having to go out there and feed you know calves before I went to school if it you know if it, you know, it was mine and like, it, it just teaches you so much and you know we Jeremy and I, I I did this course um last fall through the um Goldman Sachs 10,000 small businesses program at Babson College and it was amazing and I highly recommend it to any entrepreneur that is getting ready for a second stage growth and um one of the parts that we had to think about was the end. They really, they make you write this growth strategy and they don't make you, but they, that's the purpose of the program. And, um, and I never once stopped to think about like, we, I, I love thinking about the why of what we do, you know, again, to help cultivate this inspired American food culture. But I didn't think about what, what it looked like for Jeremy and I in the end, like where, where do we want to be? And that was so incredibly difficult to, to say, well, what do we want? And, you know, it, we came down to saying we want Sweetgrass Dairy to be a legacy business that if the boys ever wanted to come back, they have that option. But we definitely want the future to be their own. I mean, if they want to go and, you know, work in, you know, Atlanta or D.C. or New York, whatever they want to do, we, we definitely do not want them to feel obligated that this is what they have to do. And um, but I think giving them as, as much opportunity to learn work ethic and leadership and you know there's so many things you know we we've got one that's getting ready to do his eagle project and another one that's a life scout that you know they they learn things in scouts like the edge teaching method you know which is this incredible you know boy scouts have been around for 107 years this is you know program that works if you utilize it and i go back and i'm like dang if i would have known the the edge teaching method 15 years ago, I would have been a much better manager, you know, and give them the skills that they, you know, if they ever did want to come back, they would have, you know. So, 
I, who knows? You know, the future is, is theirs, and um, I hope that sweetgrass is, is still growing and, and, you know, relevant in our industry at that time, but we definitely do not think about that very often. We're just, like most entrepreneurs, we're caught in that hamster wheel of the day-to-day that we're just trying to get out of. It's interesting. I grew up with a group of kids. Uh, uh, We were all boys and uh, all of our parents were in farming or whatever. I'm actually, my dad was in the food business and my mom ran the horse farm. But um, all of us were in some business somewhat um, related to food or cows or whatever. And all of us swore we would never come back and work for our parents or or get involved in food and be food entrepreneurs. We were going to go conquer the big city and every single one of us have come back and are in the food world or working on the farms or in the food business in some way so it'll be interesting to see (laughs) maybe all four will come back because i think once it's bred into you to work for yourself or or have you know where you reap the rewards of your own labor um i think that's huge and and like back to what you said I definitely struggle with that also when I, well, when I got to college for one, um, and two, when I got out of college, just the, the difference of work ethic, there was really no, I didn't know how to say no to anything really. I was like, okay, there's something in front of me. I'll go through it. I can take on as much as I can and I know I can do it. And that's not generally the way everyone else was. So I would get frustrated probably I was spoiled by hard work, I guess would be the the term because I didn't understand that other people, it didn't come naturally to them because they didn't have it growing up, you know? So it was just infused in me in a way. And it's ultimately one of the things why I myself became an entrepreneur because I couldn't, I couldn't work for someone else. I, I, I tried it for a little bit and I couldn't, you know, and when I wanted to work, I worked. And if I needed time with my family, I took time with my family. But I could always get it done and manage my own time. And so having someone else trying to manage that for me, uh, when they would come in the office at 10 and leave at 3, I was like, you don't even work. How are you going to tell me what to do? You know, so it's a little bit bullheaded and, and stubborn in some ways because of it. But definitely learning how to manage all that and 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 manage employees that don't have the same work ethics because of that is, has been an interesting thing for me. Um, so, <laughs> well, it's so funny that you say that when I was growing up, I, I have always loved the energy of a big city. And so I remember telling my parents, like, I cannot wait to leave Thomasville. Like I'm never coming back to South Georgia. And I loved Atlanta and I love so much about it. And it was meeting Jeremy who, is not from an entrepreneurial family and it's from he grew up his, his his childhood was in Ohio and um he thought you know he he was so drawn to this platform of making cheese and being creative so he was the one that really really wanted to come back and I we you know kind of argued about it and I mean I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur but I I you know like many young people when I was in school I, I jumped around at many different things but I I think I could sum it up best. I remember Ari uh, from Zingerman's taking one of his seminars, and he said that one of his favorite quotes was, freedom is the ability to create your own future. And to me, that's what being an entrepreneur is about, is that, yeah, it's a lot of work and a lot of worry, but, you know, if you see something you don't like, you really can create that future. And, And so 
Cameron was the one that talked me into coming back here, and, and now I see it in our children where, especially, you know, our 15- and 14-year-olds that are like, we can't wait to leave. We're never coming back, and, and you know, so who knows? They they might not ever, but maybe there will be a strong enough draw to, uh, to hope that they'll come back. Who knows? Yeah, and I I can relate to that quite a bit. It's like you want to kind of flee from the farm and the, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, how much work and I don't ever want to do that. And, you know, and I sort of fled from it for a while, even though I still became an entrepreneur. Um, And I even lived in New York City for a while. And, you know, the part that was weird is like, I loved it in one way, but there was always a part of me that felt not complete in a way and that I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing or living the life that I wanted to live. And really it's because I didn't have that freedom that you're talking about. And I was surrounded by so many people on a regular basis. It wasn't the feeling of, of having space and, and, you know, people that grow up in New York city love that, that type of environment. And, and in some ways I did absolutely love the New York city, but there was always something missing for me for sure. And it did, it drew me back to a different life and, um, now in Denver, we, we have land and we have space and I'm like, okay, I can, you know, I'm content and I'm happy. And part of it's just having the freedom and, and the other part is growing up on a farm, you're not used to people being in your space 24 seven. So that's a little bit and honking horns and ambulances and all that though. I got used to it, but, and nothing against <laughs> any city environment for sure. I think everyone has their own comforts. But it's just, it's an interesting thing growing up on a farm and then, you know, you're not sure, but then you come back to it and, um, and your life changes or whatever and you, you traject in a, in a direction that really finds success. And I think for me, most of when I really left that type of environment, I became more successful as an individual because I was more comfortable because it was the way I grew up. So... Just a little tangent, right. not not that it's important, but I think a lot of people don't realize that the the way we grow up um, is often our most comfortable places when we simulate it. So, and I sure. no, I think you're right. And so you mentioned, um, did you go to University of Georgia as well, or what university did you go to? No, I ended up um, at Georgia State. Um, university because I really wanted to live in Atlanta and you know University of Georgia is in Athens which is a really cool little town but I, I wanted the the bigger city and I wanted to work at some really fine dining restaurants and so I got to work at Star Provisions which was kind of the first and, and best cheese shop um, in Atlanta and um, got to work at, at Joel which was this incredibly exciting project that was a five million dollar restaurant with a you know, five-star So it was just really, you know, an exciting time for Atlanta and just wanted to be a part of that. And so um, I, I want to a little bit take a step back. So you always had an interest in food um, from the moment you left your parents' farm and went to college? Well, I, yes and no. We, we always love food. So my parents, I mean, my mom you know, had a garden. My great grandparents always had a garden, like, you know, very Southern in that way. And, and that, you know, you ate what you grew and, you know, sometimes just like many 
you know, throughout the history of the South, it was out of necessity um, because you just couldn't afford the, uh, you know, processed frozen foods. But my mom is an incredible cook, and, and we just loved, you know, we, we always ate dinner as a family, and, and that was, you know, where we talked was the dinner table. And so it was so interesting when I met Jeremy and we started dating in college, and he was this incredible chef or cook. He really wanted to be a chef. And um, he thought that being a great chef meant that you had incredible technique. It was all in the person, the skill of the person, and what you could do to manipulate those ingredients. And, you know, what he learned over the course of dating me and, and coming and hanging out with my family and being on the farm was that really the biggest um, part of being a great chef is, is being able to source and appreciate great ingredients. Just don't mess them up, you know. And he has very much of uh, this mindset of, of appreciation for uh, raw materials that he did not have because he grew up and eating stovetop stuffing, which I'd never had. Like he couldn't believe all the things that I had never tasted before because we just didn't eat like that. And um, so, yes, food was always really important to us, but there's something about hospitality that really just drew me in. And I was, a biology major in my first couple of years of, of college, and then I switched to hospitality um, and never looked back. I, I really thought I wanted to go into uh, the wine business, so I was working with some different wine stores, and, you know, throughout my uh, career, I, we at Sweetgrass, as an as a entity, we believe a lot in continuing education, and so we, I will always you know, sign myself up to, to increase our skills, whether it's the Goldman Sachs program, but I've done the certified cheese professional exam through the American Cheese Society. Um, but I've also done the first two levels of the um, sommelier, the Court of Master Sommelier. So I've done the certified. Uh, and I just, you know, again, we keep saying that food is our love language. We love making people happy. And I think if you get bit by the restaurant bug, you just, it, it doesn't go away. You just have this desire to, uh, to make people happy and to provide an experience. So um, my parents still, I mean, this is what we do when we get together is always eat and share ingredients. And, and Jeremy and my mom are, are great cooks and the rest of us just enjoy it. But um, it's, you know, and then, and then again, of course, like trying to grow as much as we can as well. So um, it's, I don't know, it gets in your blood. You just can't, can't leave it, that, uh, that hospitality. No, I totally understand. And I like the part that you said, and I really want to emphasis, emphasize it again, is that the love language of food. And we've talked about on one of our Motivational Mondays about loving through food, but I think it is a way we do express ourselves, and it is a way that we show love towards people. And I and I love that you just said that, because I think it's so important. And the businesses that we're seeing that are doing well really put their love and in, in their their hearts into what they're doing and are authentic in what they're doing and it and it reaps rewards and it's it's pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. well, I think that you can see that authenticity. I mean, you can tell the people that really really love what they do and and that they they feel that they have something to say. You know that that there's just something that that they have to, to get out there in the world and to share versus, you know, people that are following the almighty dollar or they're doing something because, you know, they think they should or, or whatever it may be that, that 
customers and from the outside, you can see that that authenticity and that genuine uh, love of something or whether it's there or not. I totally agree. And it, it becomes very apparent um, as you talk to food entrepreneurs and beverage entrepreneurs, whether they're just doing it for money or they're doing it because of a love for it. And it's interesting. Um, Deborah and I talk about this quite a bit as entrepreneurs is that when you put your love and your heart into something, uh, the money tends to just follow it uh, for whatever reason. But if you do it just for the money, then money never seems to come in the way you want it uh, or need it or success that you expect. And so there's always just that mindset. I mean, if you're doing something just for the money, you're, you're not doing the right thing because you're not putting your love into your product or your beverage or the food that you're producing. So I, I think that's awesome that we just discussed it. The other thing I want to discuss is you mentioned the um, Goldman Sachs thing and the vision for your company. What is your vision for the future and where are you and Jeremy trying to take the company? So we have spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about this and and what is the future of sweetgrass. And so one of our, you know, it's such a wonderful problem to have, but it's still been a problem is that we have completely maxed out capacity at our facility and we have more demand than we have supply. So um, when my mom and dad built the original creamery, they just used some money that they had set aside for retirement and built it on a shoestring. It was supposed to be a test kitchen that they were hoping that they could get maybe 10 years life out of. Now we are going on, it will be year 19 in December. So we have added on and added on. It's this little Frankenstein of a building. Um, but it, we have been grandfathered in in certain ways, but we are not meeting some of the new business, uh, food safety codes that are coming out, like the slope of the floor or know how the corner like they just didn't have that 19 years ago and so we are faced with a you know an issue of do we retrofit our current facility Uh, we also are not very efficient because of the way that we've added on there's a lot of crossover and and room for potential you know sanitation problems uh, if we don't manage it very very quickly or um, do we invest in a new production facility that is safer and and with sanitation and and more efficient and, you know, thinking about the cheese-making process. And so um, for the last two years, we have been designing, visiting different cheesemakers, designing a cheese-making facility that, you know, will take us to our second stage growth as well as doing these programs, working with a um, second stage company called Six Point Creative to help us with that marketing and sales strategy to be able to help us get to the next level. And um, so we really would. We'd love to make a new, build a new production facility. Our accountant has said for a long time that we are in this really difficult kind of no man's land where we're too small to be big, but we're too big to be small. So we're not capturing any of those scales of economy or efficiencies. And Right now, there's just not enough hours in the day to get everything done, but we can't necessarily afford to hire more people to help us get it done. So we're in a place that we will not be able to be sustainable forever. We need to get, we need to grow in order to be able to hire more people to help us spread this workload and um, be able to make more cheese and, and you know, continue the Sweetgrass Dairy mission and vision. So that's that's our hope. We're hoping that we will be, 
breaking ground on a new facility as soon as we can. We finally have the, the plans drawn and the equipment list done, and now we're trying to work with our local bank and a SBA 504 program to try to get funding. And as soon as we do, we'll be building a new facility. So that's our goal. I think that's amazing. And just so the audience knows, FESMA is the Food Safety Modernization Act that I can't remember when it was passed, but early 2010s. And there was yeah. some time before it was implemented. I mean, I know in all of our facilities, we've had to make some major changes and are, are still trying to get all the way up to par and some of our older facilities. And it's been one of the most drastic changes in food safety in I think they said it was the most drastic food safety change in like 50 years or something because it is so extreme and it is modernizing food safety in the United States to such extreme levels. Um, there are a lot of companies and yeah. people out there that are having trouble taking their existing facilities and meeting those standards. It's it's one of those Absolutely. things where you, it's best for the, I know they're trying to better food safety in the, the food service industry, but it, it comes at a huge financial cost to entrepreneurs and small businesses who have to change those law or change those things in their facilities to meet those laws. Yes. And I think you're absolutely right on that. And there's been so much gray area in there. And it's, you know, we do live in kind of a scary time where, you know, when spinach can kill you because of you know, pathogenic bacteria and like FISMA needed to, to pass. I mean, there, there needed to be something to be done, but you're right. It was passed uh, as an umbrella for everyone and all these small producers got lumped in there as well. And I do, we always try to think about consumer safety first because, you know, one outbreak of, you know, listeria will be out of business. So we, we try to be so careful and, you know, we have our HACCP plan, our party auditing, we have a production manager that is really on top of it and, and you know, invested money in safety. And we also, I mean, we spent thousands of dollars sending cheeses off for pathogenic testing. That's not required, but we do it so that we can sleep well at night. And um, But you're right, it is a huge financial um, burden uh, to have to update, you know, your facilities and, and um, you know, had we known we were building things and we would have done them differently. But, you know, that's one thing. We, we have a very, very new industry. I mean, artisan cheese making really didn't start happening until the early 80s with, you know, Vermont Creamery and um, Cypress Grove and Capriole. And, I mean, you know, I always say that we stand on the shoulders of giants and, and that I can't even imagine making cheese in the early 80s where Americans didn't know anything about cheese. And it was hard enough to up at the fancy food show with a booth and it said sweetgrass dairy handmade cheeses from georgia and somebody you know multiple people wasn't just one but you know throughout the three days multiple people had walked up and they go oh cheeses from georgia and then i started talking and they go oh that's not the georgia that i was thinking so their first thought was you know from on the other side of the world and not even in our own country we we don't come from an an area with a long history of cheese making and that's been such a blessing and a curse. You know, your biggest strengths become your biggest weaknesses. And um, that we don't have a lot of competition down here, but we have a lot of education that we have to do to sell cheese in the South. So uh, it's, it's definitely a journey. And it's, I think that I look forward to the future because there's only going to be more and more awareness. But it also means that 
with these regulations, I, I think it's going to hopefully make us all safer too. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a half full kind of person. So I'm going to hope that uh, it gets people on board and, and all of these regulations, when we first started selling cheese, you know, we could just ship cheese directly to Whole Foods with, you know, in a UPS box with a couple ice packs and they would take it. And now it you know, has to go through, you have to be audited and it has to go through a distributor that has the half-set plan that they're also audited. And it has to arrive at a certain temperature. It has to be refrigerated the whole time. There's good reasons for all of that. But if you're getting started and you're a tiny little cheesemaker, it's really, really, those barriers to entry are so hard. And um, I, you know, like you said, the the cost of in investment to do that is, is definitely going to deter a lot of potential people from being able to do it. Yeah, it's crazy because uh, as food entrepreneurs, you try to think ahead and, and build your facilities or as you add uh, additions on, you try to see in the future, but you never know wh- what where the regulations are going to go. And it's so hard to predict them. I mean, it could be anything from the way of food you know, a drain is done in your kitchen in the floor to, you know, which you put in a trough drain and now they don't want trough drains anymore and things like that, that were once standards or the things they encourage are now no longer the things they want because they found foodborne illness of some sort related to those things. So it's something they've done, but now they need to undo and change the regulations. So you're like, well, I followed the regulation before. But now I have to change it. And I agree, it is it is for the best for food. And I think that's great. And then the other thing I want to just touch upon that you said is we as the United States, um, and there are a lot of countries out there in the world that are agricultural giants, particularly the United States, we produce so much agricultural products and produce and and proteins and things like that. And we are just on the edge of getting to you know, well, one is, is the locally sourced and the locally sustainable products, I think is a big deal because it's encouraging food entrepreneurs in the artisan, um, level across the board or the, the cobbler type food industry that you see often in Europe. And, but it's also taking our Mm -hmm. agriculture and doing something more than just putting it into a box that has, three years of shelf life in a grocery store, we're actually making food that's healthier just by making it the way it's supposed to be done or, or having the animals or the farming systems that make it better from the very beginning before we consume it. So in the United States, I think it's amazing what we're seeing here. And I, I heard someone say recently that we're in like this new, we're in the new food era. It's like food 6.0. We industrialize food so much in this country that we sort of lost track of keeping the nutrition and keeping it healthy and keeping it good in some ways. Um, and we sort of just pump it out and, and it all became about volume, as you said earlier in the podcast, versus the quality in the audience, mm-hmm. anyone who's listening, I think picking quality in, in our food is hugely important. One, from a nutrition standpoint. is, And in our business, we do a lot with food, nutrition, and dietary and stuff because we do a lot of hospital and institutions and schools. And what we've discovered is, you know, the better those products are go- grown or the better the animals are taken care of, the more nutritious those products are uh, for you as a human. And what we're also seeing is people eat less because they're getting the nutrients from that product 
because it's off the vine shorter. And as you said, you're producing the milk within, or you're producing the cheese within two days of being the, the, of the cow being milked. And so that's important. You think about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no loss there. And, and anyone in our, in my side of the business, that's a nutritious knows that once you pick that blueberry or strawberry or, or whatever, there is a, an attrition that happens in the nutrition that's in that product product. And often nutrition labels are based on the product, right? As it comes off the tree or out of the ground or, or a slaughter, it doesn't take into account how long it's been sitting around and they do, it does lose Mm -hmm. value. Just like it, things go bad. The same idea is true as that thing ripens or over ripens, it loses that value. And thus we consume more. Mm -hmm. And we have a huge problem with that in the United States. And it's not only about healthy food, it's about eating better food. That's grown better and and healthy and that doesn't mean that like you said it has to be outdoor cows it just means that if they have a better standard of life then that food coming to us has a better standard of health and nutrition to go into our bodies so we're seeing quite an evolution there in food so i really enjoyed this podcast i I can't even tell you how excited i am (laughs) no i 100 percent agree with you on all of that and i also would add that i've believe for a long time that the future of food is going to be um, very tailored to everyone's individual nutritional needs and that, you know, that what makes me feel the best is not necessarily going to be what makes you feel the best and that, you know, we need to eat right for our body type, our, our, you know, what, what makes us feel good. And I know that just between Jeremy and I, I, for some reason, when I tried to eat a low protein diet, I do not feel good. I end up having some hypoglycemia problems. And so I need a much higher protein um, diet to feel good. Whereas Jeremy, if he gets too much, his joints ache and, you know, he just hurts and, and he has to really watch what, what he eats. And I remember talking with Glenn Roberts from Anthony Mills, who is an amazing authority on so many things. He's so brilliant. And I'm very, very gluten intolerant. I haven't eaten gluten in over 15 years. And um, my mom is, you know, very, very gluten intolerant as well. She's probably more celiac, has just never gone through the testing. I have two sons that are very, very gluten intolerant. That one had a failure to thrive when he was young. We just couldn't quite figure it out. It's interesting, you know, watching this transition through all these generations of, of being gluten intolerant what, what that means that 15 years ago we had doctors that told us there was no such thing that was that was not real and glenn, glenn roberts would say we have adulterated wheat so much in this country that our bodies don't recognize it some of us you know in the way that our genetics and, and how we're made and i would venture to say the same thing with dairy there's a lot of people that are lactose intolerant but it's because the milk if they're drinking shelf-stable milk that can sit there for two years that's not milk you've denatured all the proteins and you know no wonder you can't drink that and I think that we need to be very um, thoughtful and mindful of of how we feel and and what we're eating what makes us feel good what doesn't and and that you know let that be the the future of nutrition and um, I would also say that I'm I definitely believe in in um, the danger of factory farming and that I think that there is something true about the food trends and how much this big push for veganism and vegetarianism 
is, is happening. But I would also say I think it's very dangerous for our industry. I mean, selfishly for our industry, I, I don't want people to give up cheese. Um, but I think some of the most unhealthy people that I know have been vegans that are eating tons of processed sugar, just no animal products. And they're not listening to their bodies and, and what they need. And I worry, you know, so many dairy farmers have said that when one of the biggest mistakes that happened was when dairy farmers didn't fight for the name milk, when, you know, almonds and cashews and hemp can be called milk, yeah. then milk in itself lost value. And, and that we're facing that. We're seeing dairy farmers go out of business left and right. And what happens when you can create milk genetically in a laboratory, not even from a cow? What happens to dairy farmers then? What happens to cheese makers? And, um, I think there's probably always going to be a little small movement of like slow foods and people that appreciate that. But when it comes down to the dollars and cents and if it costs three times as much to get milk from a cow than it does from a laboratory, what does that mean for our industry? And, and how, you know, what does that mean for our health and, and that? So I think that there's some interesting like ethical and uh, nutritional know debates coming down the pipeline and i do think that we should all cut back on the meat that we eat. definitely get away from factory farming i mean that's just not good for the environment or cows or ourselves but there, to me it's all about balance life is about balance and, and finding that 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 perfect kind of we want homeostasis you know and uh so i i think it will be an interesting time into the next you know, a couple decades. I agree with that. Actually, all of what you said, 100%. Um, and th- there is balance. I mean, that's good or bad or, or sugar or not sugar. Um, I think there's a huge balance there uh, in your diet that needs to maintain. I don't eat much sugar myself just because I, I don't like the way it makes me feel. And I too, in the United States, when I eat anything gluten i have i get a reaction i and if i eat too much of it i often my immune system just is, goes haywire and um and the same with potatoes actually uh regular potatoes not sweet potatoes my immune system just everything gets all messed up and my skin gets all weird and but if i go to europe and and deborah and i travel a lot i don't get the same reactions from it and i've actually cut gluten out and and anything with gluten in as much as possible and white potatoes in my diet, even though I think you should have a balance of all of it, but it's picking the right product for sure and how it's grown and being aware of what you're putting into your body. And the other part is, is, I mean, it trickles all the way down to beer. I mean, in Europe and the way things are processed and I hope, and, and I believe it's true is in the United States, we are becoming more conscious of this and we're becoming more conscious of a better balanced diet and you know things like the food pyramid are sort of being thrown out for for more of a balance where it shouldn't be a, a pyramid it should be more of an, an equalization of the way you put things into your body and i know in my industry and in, in food and nutrition that we're starting to see that as well and people are becoming aware and people are starting to be aware that they're better off getting fresh produce and fresh products and and making their own food versus buying it in a box or if they go somewhere that having a fresh product where the restaurant is telling you where they got the the apples from or the tomatoes or the lettuce from and it's a local farm there we're starting to see a movement in that but you know it's not mainstream yet for sure so 
um, I'm excited for because I think in my own experience, and I've been in food for, um, well, as a family for a long time, but myself in food for over 17 years, and just it made sense, you know, as early as 2010, when these ideas started really coming out in the United States, it just made sense. And when I changed my own diet around food, I stopped having, you know, the reactions I was getting and, and the skin thing and the, and whatever. And it's kind of incredible that, you know, there's two ways to look at things. I mean, food really is preventative for our health and to leave healthy lives. It prevents cancer and disease and and things like that that we're only beginning to realize because we've industrialized things so much we've lost that value and uh sure and hopefully we can reverse it and and trend in a different direction it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of education but i think there are people out there like like you and like me and a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are trying to change that business so i'm excited to see where it goes as well yeah, I would agree. And so I didn't even get through half of my questions for you. And we're, we're, I want to make sure we're, um, we do another episode and I, I'll email you as soon as we get, we get off to, to just talk about different times and you guys can look at your calendar maybe, and we'll set up another time because I think there's so many other questions. We didn't even get into failures and lessons learned from them. And I really want to talk about what you said about the continuing <laughs> education for sure. So, um, I thank you, Jessica, for coming on. I, I, this is extremely educational for me and I can't tell you the gratitude that I have for you coming on the show and increasing my continued education, uh, for sure. Uh, well, you are so welcome. Thank you for, uh, being so engaging and asking such wonderful qu- questions. And it's very refreshing to, uh, be able to talk about things other than just, you know, the cheese or I, I love the behind the scenes, like why, why do you do it? It's so much more interesting to me than what we're doing. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, no, thank you. And can you tell the audience your website and how they can find you on social media and uh, how the places they can find your cheese? Sure. So our website is sweetgrassdairy.com and we're also on Instagram, sweetgrassdairy, all lowercase, all one word. And Facebook and Sweetgrass Area again. And um, we also, again, we have the cheese shop and restaurant in downtown Thomasville. We are located uh, roughly three and a half hours south of Atlanta, only about an hour north of Tallahassee. So if you are driving from Atlanta to the beach, we are right on the way. And I would love to welcome you to Thomasville. And, and always, I say, I would love for people to know where their food comes from. So we get the question all the time, do we sell raw milk? And we don't. Uh, we sell 100% of our milk to the co-op, and so Jeremy and I have to buy the milk back to the co-op. But I do think it's important that if somebody is going to buy raw milk, they should go, and they should see the how the cows are being taken care of, see the pastures, see that. So if anybody ever wants to come and see sweetgrass dairy and see the cows, you know, we, we always welcome them too. And um, I think that's Again, the secret to the, the future of food. So um, we'd love to, to have you in Thomasville. Well, and I think that's so important for for the education of individuals is that they have that opportunity. So I appreciate you uh, letting the audience know to come do that. And uh, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of people having that sort of, I'll call it food tourism, um, which is just beyond 
touring cities to try their restaurants. It goes into the farms and seeing how the food's actually produced. So I, I appreciate sure. you And offering. then I would, yeah, no problem. And I would also say that you can always email me directly. It's just Jessica at sweetgrassdairy.com. And, uh, you know, to ask any questions or anything, I'm, I'm available. Well, and thank you again, Jessica. Um, this is Justin in the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. You can reach me at justin.bizarro at gmail.com. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Justin in the Food Entrepreneurs. And if you guys, are again, are liking what we're doing here and you like this episode, please share it. Please share it on social media and please tell a friend. Thank you guys and have a great day. 